Howard Hendricks certainly doesn't need any introduction from me, and uh, actually doesn't even want me to give one. He just said, turn me loose and let me go, but I'm, I want to do it anyway. Uh, just because I love the guy so much, I have come to have such a deep appreciation for him over the years. We invited him up here to uh, do a conference for Idaho Mountain Ministries, and uh, had about 200 uh, pastors and laymen here Friday night, lay women as well, and uh, pastors' wives. And then uh, uh, Saturday uh, had about 50 pastors and their wives at Twin Falls for uh, an excellent time of fellowship and instruction. Uh, I've always known that uh, I owed him a great debt. He's one of a half dozen people or so who have really impacted my life. But when I heard him teach, I, I suddenly realized how much I owed him because I heard all of these things that I've been saying for years that I thought were originally mine, and they came from him. So it, it is a treat. It is a privilege for me to uh, have him here and have some fellowship with him and give you an opportunity to see the real, live Howard Hendricks. How are your own? Thanks, Dave. And good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Good morning. They usually go out after I speak, not before. What a pleasure it is for me to be here. Every time I'm introduced by one of my former students, I get a touch of paranoia. This is a highly threatening experience. And I want to commend Dave for his incredible restraint. But all you need to know is that if he ever opens his mouth, he's dead in the water. You wouldn't believe what I can tell you about Dave Roper. <laughs> One of the most gracious human beings God has ever brought into my life. You know, teaching as long as I have, I've had the privilege of marking a lot of students. But there are very few students who have marked my life as much as Dave Roper. I consider him a choice, personal friend. He and his wife, Carolyn, have greatly enriched my life. You need to know that their greatest claim to fame is that they gave me a dachshund, <laughs> who has now become internationally famous through my writing. And... Uh, you should know how they introduced me to the Dachshund. They were leaving seminary upon graduation, so they invited me to bring my four children over to their apartment. <laughs> and here's this delightful little black ink spot. And, uh, you know, just casually in the presence of the children, he says, uh, Prof, how would you like to have a little Dachshund? Whereupon I got four enthusiastic votes and was totally outvoted. We've raised four kids on that dachshund. And uh, we'll never be the same as a result of France. The thing I appreciate most about Dave is that he's a man after my own head. He 
see, if you're bald in the front, you're a thinker. If you're bald in the back, you're a lover. If you're bald from the front to the back, you just think you're a lover. <laughs> you know, I was thinking yesterday over the incredible staff that God has given you in this church. I hope you don't take that for granted. I know churches all over America who would give their right arm for any one of the couples that God has given to you. And to think that uh, he's poured all of these creative and gifted people into one ministry. And I know you don't take that for granted because so many of you have shared so enthusiastically and appreciatively of what these men and women have meant to you. And you've been a great source of challenge to them. I thank God for what he's doing in you and through you. I bring you greetings from Dallas Theological Seminary, our faculty, staff, student body of over 1,700 college and university graduates currently preparing to preach and teach the Word all across America in churches just like this and around the world. And we believe our greatest need at the seminary is spiritual. And we're asking God to raise up a larger core of men and women and young people just like you who will make some intercessory investments on our behalf. I met a physician some time ago at the end of a service. I was preaching in a local church and he came forward and said, you're only the second seminary professor that I have ever met from Dallas. But I would like you to know that every year I write and secure a seminary catalog. And every week I pray for every faculty member by name. And every month for every student. Men and women, that's the secret of a seminary education that the Spirit of God is working in the lives of our students. And we would like to solicit your prayer support. I got a few bulletins here about the seminary, not enough to go around for sure, but if there are any young people who are thinking about the possibilities of seminary and you would like to know something about Dallas, why don't you pick up a copy, and uh, you're welcome to take them as long as they last. If you have a Bible or a New Testament, may I invite you to turn in our Father's Word to the Epistle of James, James chapter 1. I want to focus your attention this morning on the first 11 verses under the title, The Problem of Pain. James was an eminently practical Christian who could not conceive of a merely theoretic faith. For him, truth must become tangent to life. My creed must be translated into my conduct. My doctrine must be transfused by my duty. In a word, 
James was interested in a belief that behaves. And I think he would have had a great deal of sympathy with the uneducated pastor who was out calling one day on one of his delinquent deacons who had been rather remiss in his responsibilities at the church. During the course of the conversation, he kept protesting, but pastor, you don't understand. The reason I ain't more active is that I've got a bad heart. And the pastor totally ignored it and just continued to press his responsibilities and his need for faithfulness. And finally, the man fairly exploded as he said, Pastor, I can't be more active. I've got a bad heart. The pastor grew weary of that. And he finally turned to the man and said, Brother, there ain't nothing wrong with your heart. The trouble with you is there's something wrong with your liver. Because you ain't living right. <laughs> now, that's exactly what James is talking about. You see, he was writing to a group of people who prided themselves in their orthodoxy, but who were short of orthopraxy. And so he pens this most practical of epistles. Have you read it recently? If you have... I'm sure you've gained the impression that James has been reading your mail. He leans over you like a dentist and says reassuringly, this may hurt a little. So if during the course of the message you are wont to shout, ouch, it is with divine design. The thing that has always intrigued me is the first subject that James elects to discuss, namely, the problem of pain. Why would anyone start there? Well, we have an historical key hanging at the front door of this book with which to find the reason. You notice verse 1, James, a servant of God, and of the Lord Jesus Christ, notice, to the twelve tribes scattered, underline that, scattered among the nations. That's the key. You see, James is writing to a group of displaced persons. Hold your finger here and go back in your New Testament to the book of the Acts. Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8 opens with Saul of Tarsus, public enemy number one to the church in action. Discovering to his disgust the spiritual law of thermodynamics. That is, the greater the heat, the greater the expansion. The more he persecuted the thing, the more it flourished. So in the latter part of verse 1 of chapter 8, on that day a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were, there it is again, scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Verse 4, those who had been scattered 
went everywhere griping and complaining and saying, my, isn't it tragic that God allowed this to happen to us? You'll notice that in your text. <laughs> That's the reversed standard version. <laughs> you see, what they did was to take their circumstances and make them pulpits from which to preach the gospel. Not ask why, but what is the opportunity? I was ministering in the great country of India some years ago. We were conducting pastors' conferences and we conducted one just outside of one of the communist-controlled states where it's against the law to preach the gospel. And to that pastor's conference came two pastors who had just been released from prison for preaching the gospel. I said, men, what's it like in your state? They said, it's just like the book of the Acts. He said, really? Tell me about it. Well, they said, the more they persecute us, the more we flourish. We had to start two services, three services, four services. We're now up to five services every Sunday to accommodate the people who want to come and hear the word. In fact, the elders got together one day and they said, Pastor, we got a problem. He said, really? What's that? He said, we are discovering some people who are coming to more than one service. <laughs> so they got up and made an announcement. From now on, it's one service and one service only. If we see you in a second service, we're going to ask you to leave because you are taking the seat of somebody who needs to hear the Word of God. Well, that worked for a while. And then the elders came up with another plan. So they got up and made the announcement. From now on, if you come this Sunday, you stay home next Sunday. One Sunday on, one Sunday off. Just like it is in Boise. <laughs> but for an altogether different reason. And you know, you emerge from an experience like that asking, uh, how can we launch a persecution? <laughs> One of the most exciting ministry I've ever had in my life, I've had behind the Iron Curtain. Just blows me away. And the last time I was there, I said to this man, whose commitment to Jesus Christ is so unbelievable, I said to him, what's the true nature of the church? He said, it's never been as strong. He said, they're getting tighter. The pressures are greater. The persecution is more intense. But the more they tighten the screws, the more the church flourishes. He said, I've been a Christian over 50-some years. I've never seen the church as virile and alive as it is right now. I said, well, tell me, how do your people witness in this kind of an environment? He said, it's simple. He said, we've discovered that we are compelled to live such a distinctively different Christian life 
so that people are compelled to ask us for an explanation. What makes the difference? Isn't that beautiful? Anybody ever ask you that? Now, it's to that persecuted group. The fires are white hot. The James discusses the problem of pain. You see, he's not answering the questions nobody's asking. He's dealing with the issues that are kicking the slats out of their life. That are tear, that's tearing their souls to shreds. Have you got a pencil or a pen? I want you to write three simple words in the margin of your Bible that'll help you to unravel the argument of this passage. Because I'll guarantee you, you'll have many occasions to come back to it on a personal basis. Number one, beside verses two through four, I want you to write the little word purpose. You see, in verses 2 through 4, the Spirit of God, through James, underscores the purpose of testing, of suffering, of problems for the believer. And will you note the jarring way in which he begins it? Count it all pure joy, my brothers, when you fall so as to be completely surrounded with all kinds of testing. <laughs> what a strange reaction. No. Supernatural. You see, Peter said, Think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. That's the natural reaction. Have you ever found yourself asking Jesus Christ to make you just like himself? Lord, make me like Jesus Christ. And the moment God goes to work, you say, Lord, what happened? He says, nothing. I'm just answering your prayers. But so often, you know, here I am trying to live a nice Christian life, being faithful to Jesus. And now look what happened. You underline in your mind, if not in your Bible, the little word when. Please note, it does not say if. I know what some of you are thinking. I can see it on your face. Oh, Brother Hendricks, I don't have any problems. <laughs> Be patient. <laughs> They're on their way. You see, my friend, this is not an elective in God's school. This is a required course. And by the way, there's no exception. That's why Job said, man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. Jesus Christ said, in the world you shall have tribulation. That's a promise. And by the way, it's a promise made by the same person who said, if I go away... I will come again. The Apostle Paul said, It's given unto you not only to believe, but also to suffer. 
I know you've thanked God for the gift of belief. When's the last time you thanked him for the gift of suffering? It's sourced in the same hand. And you say, man, that's radical. Yeah. How do you come by that? Hang on. Count it all pure joy when you face many kinds of trials because here's the reason why you can respond by counting it all joy. Because you know, and by the way, he wants you to know it by experience, that the testing of your faith develops endurance. You see, my friends, God is not simply interested in giving you a fire insurance policy to keep you out of hell. He's interested in making you just like Jesus Christ. And may I remind you that Jesus Christ, although he was a son, yet learned he obedience. How? By the things that he suffered. There is not only the impartation of faith, there is the development of faith. Do you remember the classic illustration? The man who punctures the pages of the New Testament more frequently than any other Old Testament character is Abraham. In fact, James himself is going to pick him up as the classic illustration of a faith that works. And the question is, you know, is his faith simply a faith of words? He takes you back to Genesis 15, where God says to him, I am thy shield and thine exceeding great reward. And the text says, Abraham believed God. He used him as a prop, as his sole means of support. And it was counted to him for righteousness. But is that a nice set of words? You know, is that some religious expression? Or does that stuff make a difference in how you live? Well, James says you really don't know the ultimate answer to that till 30 years later when you get to Genesis 22. The miracle boy has been born. And now God says to him, take your son. I mean your only son. I mean the one whom you love. And offer him up as a sacrifice. Many of you are parents. What would you do if God asked you to do that? Got some nice mountains around here for sacrifice. Suppose God were to ask you to sacrifice your son. I'm talking about your only son. You know, the only one you could ever have. A miracle boy. God finally gave you the son. And now he says, offer him up. Boy, would I have gotten articulate at that point. Man, I, I can almost hear the speech now. I, I, I got a tape on this thing. You know, oh, God, we're, we're in trouble. Man, your computer's gone again. You have any idea, God, what this is going to do to your public relations program? I mean, all of the pagan nations round about believe in child sacrifice. Man, you'll never make it with us. Guy never opens his mouth. He just starts walking up. You know, and when I was in Sunday school, I always had the impression, you know, that a little old Isaac is going on, you know, little kid. (laughs) 
you put the data together, man, you got a kid 21, 22 years of age. I mean, you know, not a Twinkie. <laughs> and they're walking up and they have a conversation. And the boy turns to his dad and says, hey, dad, we get the fire. We got the wood. Well, where's the sacrifice? What would you have said? Well, uh, we as uh, consequently where from there. Uh, <laughs> what a statement of faith. The Lord himself shall provide a lamb. Would you have said knowing that your boy is the lamb? And the interesting thing is when you take that account and piece it with Hebrews 11, you get this remarkable insight that he puts the boy on it, lifts the knife, and as far as God is concerned, he had made the decision to kill him. It was a completed action. Why? Because he felt, if I killed him, it's possible God will bring him back from the dead. Friend, that's where he got him from in the first place from the death of Sarah and the deadness of Abraham, God brought forth life. God says, I love it. See, that's not a faith of words. That's a faith of works. And Abraham takes a giant step in the development of his faith. What does that produce? Well, that produces endurance. It's a fascinating key word in the New Testament. It's a military term that means to hold up courageously under fire. You translated patience. Anybody in here who doesn't need patience? Anybody in here who's got a thoroughly adequate supply of patience under every conceivable circumstance? Anybody who doesn't want patience? Oh, we all want the product. What we don't want is the process. And James says you need to understand to get that product you need this process. It's the testing of your faith that produces endurance. The ability to hang tough. Two of us doesn't appreciate it. Dear couple who gave testimony of God's working in the life of this little child. And many of you, if we had time today, we could go throughout this auditorium telling of God's miraculous working in your life and in the most agonizing of human experiences. You look at people like this, you say, how in the world do they handle it? We have a couple in the city of Dallas who have three of the most severely retarded children in our community. And we have people from all over America who come to the city of Dallas to get involved with that couple, to ask them, how in the world do you cope with that kind of a reality? We look at an older person or a person who's gone on in his faith and we say, man, that's what I want to be, Lord. But how do you get there? James says you only get there through a process. It's the process of what God is doing in your life every day through the problems. The challenge our brother's going to face in Salt Lake City. The challenge you're going to face this afternoon, if not tomorrow morning. It's going to develop you as a man, as a woman, as a young person, even as a child. 
They give you the ability to endure. Now, notice the next verse. But endurance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. In other words, don't bail out. Don't hit the panic button. Don't perform an abortion upon God's purpose. You've got to allow that process to go full term in order for it to accomplish the purpose that God has designed to make you just like Jesus Christ. And he uses two fascinating terms here in the original text. He uses terms to describe the process of the development of fruit. Anybody who's been around the growing of fruit knows that a piece of fruit essentially goes through two stages of development. First of all, it goes through the stage of development where it has all of the component parts. In other words, it will never be more of a grapefruit, never more of an apple than it is right now. It's got all of the parts it will ever have, but nobody wants to eat it. There's a second stage of development in which that apple, that grapefruit, that pear has to ripen so that it becomes mature and tasty. And the most delicious fruit in all of the world is a piece of tree or vine ripened fruit that you pick right off that tree, that vine, and you sink your teeth into it. I can, I can still remember the first time in the jungle I was introduced to a banana. Now, most of us think we know what bananas are. We got them on our table. You put them on your cereal. You have never eaten a banana in America. Just take it by faith. <laughs> I mean, they pick that stuff so far in advance, stick it on a boat, and hope it ripens. And not too fast, either, before it gets to your table. You should get a banana picked off of a bunch from a tree. You sink your teeth into it. It's an altogether different fruit with the most distinctive taste you have ever had. James says, that's what I want to do with you. That's what God is trying to accomplish. See, he doesn't want to simply have you, for you to have a component part so you know all of the doctrinal answers, all of the shibboleths to get over Jordan. He wants to make you like Jesus Christ. Have you ever noticed how many Christians there are who are angular? That are like a piece of sandpaper? Like a buzz saw, you back up to them. <laughs> like Vance Habner says, a lot of Christians are like porcupines. They got a lot of fine points, but you can't get near them. <laughs> Boy, remember this just about blew me out years ago. I... You know, I kept running into these Christians, and I thought, man, why? God must be running a zoo. <laughs> and Ray Stedman and I used to ferry Dr. Ironside around. That was our favorite indoor sport. And I remember I got so concerned. One day I said, Dr. Ironside, I said, you know, how do you account for the fact that there's so many nuts in the body? And I'll never forget him. He smiled and looked at me and said, Allie, Remember, wherever there's light, there are bugs. <laughs>
Well, the interesting thing is there are some of us who do a better job of, Christ- of kicking non-Christians in the teeth than we ever do with salt of attracting them to Jesus Christ. And the reason is we've never allowed the Lord to ripen us up, to sweeten us, so that you know, we become the most delectable fruit. And the explanation for the transformation in our life is that not we're that kind of a person. Nobody knows it better than the people who live with us. The only explanation we have is that this is what Jesus Christ has accomplished in my life. You need to understand I'm not, not, not naturally like that. So you ask yourself the simple question, what is there in my life that can only be explained on the basis of the supernatural? That's what God is about in your life. Now, let's look at verses 5 to 8, because this is the second strand of his argument. Here I want you to write the little word place, P-L-A-C-E. In verses 5 to 8, he discusses the place of wisdom in testing. Now, you need to understand that wisdom in the scriptures primarily has reference to the skill of living to the ability to take that which you understand and translate it into your life, to use it. So he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, and we need to translate it, and you will, wisdom for what? Why, wisdom to react to your testing by counting it all joy. Anybody identify with that? Man, yeah, count me in. That's my problem. That's what I need. Good. Hang on. He should ask God. What will he do? He'll give generously to all without finding fault. Isn't that lovely? Isn't it? Don't you say anything around here? (laughs) This guy lets you talk? Aren't you glad that God doesn't work you over for the many times you come? Isn't it refreshing that coming 419 times in one day, he doesn't say what? Are you here again? Good night, you were just here five minutes ago. Gabriel, go get the club. <laughs> A lady in my office the other day, I just about roared. I tried to be polite. But I appreciated her honesty. I told her later, lady, you have been the most refreshing thing that walked into my life. She said to me, you know, I I don't pray very much because I I just pray about the big problems in my life. I I just don't want to bother God with all those others. He's so busy running the rest of the world. You know, because she has an idea of God as sort of a harassed telephone operator and all the calls are coming in. (laughs) Ah, James says, look, get the picture of who it is you're dealing with. He'll never work you over for coming. Did you ever ask somebody to do something for you and they squirm and say, well, all right. Your reaction matches mine. I have the strongest urge to say, really, friend, if it's that painful, forget it. See, James says God is not like that. You don't wear him down. You don't bother him. 
You don't interrupt them from running the universe. Every time you show up. No. He said it will be given to him. But, now here is the key. When you ask, you must believe, that's positive, and not doubt, that's negative. Because he who doubts, he's going to spell this out, is like a wave of the sea blown, tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. Now, you need to understand the key to the understanding of this passage is the little word translated doubt. It means to be divided in one's mind. Let's see if we can illustrate it. The World Series is on. It's all tied up. Two game, three games apiece. We're going into the seventh and determinative game. Score is two to two. It's the last half of the ninth inning. We got two outs. We got a full count on the batter. There's a guy on third. And the pitcher throws what may be the most determinative ball in the game. And as a surprise to everyone, he lays down a bunt to the third baseman. And having previously been signaled, the guy streaks in from third. The third baseman is very alert, and he runs in, scoops up the ball, tosses it to the waiting catcher, who is the man, slides underneath him, bang, tags him. And every eye in the stadium is on a little guy in a black suit. So we're all looking for a sign. Is it out? Are safe. And he makes a sign. He takes off his hat and he scratches his head. <laughs> As we come a little closer, we hear him say, Boy, this is a rough one. <laughs> you know, I mean, in some ways it would appear he was out. But the more I think about it, the more I think <laughs> he might be safe. My friend, kill the ump would be more than a slogan. <laughs> See, they'd be organizing a lynching party. James says, you need to understand, when you come to God, you're going to have to make up your mind whether God is an adequate object for your trust or not. Now, please know, please know, don't miss this or you miss everything. There's nothing in this passage, there is nothing in the Word of God that guarantees you will understand God's purpose. That's never promised to the believer. The only thing that is promised to you is God has a purpose. Therefore, the ultimate test of faith is who is your God? Is He a worthy object for your trust? Do you think he's got it together? Or do you think your problems have sort of slipped up on his blind side? And then he bites his nails, wondering how in the world are we going to pull this one off? See, James says, uh-uh. You can ask God for wisdom, but you're going to have to come with a conviction. He's got it together. Now, look at verses 9 to 11. This is the key. Not only to this passage, I think, to life. Verses 9 through 11 are verses that are often grossly misunderstood. 
And the reason is the people do not see it in its context. The word I want you to write in your Bible is the little word perspective. Because you see, there is a perspective that you need in the midst of the trial, of the testing, of the problem, of the hassle that you're currently involved in, whatever it is. I think he is citing a first century case history. Remember we said, here's a church under persecution. Okay, in that church are wealthy people and poor people. So he picks out one who is very, very wealthy, and he picks out another who is very, very poor. And they are both Christians experiencing the impact of the persecution. So he says, the brother in humble circumstances, that is, the individual who is economically deprived under the persecution, ought to take pride. In what? In his high position. I take it, he's talking about his spiritual position. You see, here's a poor man who has just enough to subsist, and under the impact of persecution, it appears he's lost everything. He says, God, I don't have anything. James says, you're wrong. You have everything in Jesus Christ. And neither economic or political deprivation of any way, any kind, can in any way tamper with that position. Well, what about the one who is rich? Verse 10, the one who is rich should take pride in his low position. That is, that although he was wealthy, through the persecution, he has been brought down to a place of humility because he's going to pass away like a wild flower. He's just getting the picture. For the sun rises with scorching heat, withers the plant, its blossom falls, its beauty is destroyed in the same way. The rich man will fade away even while he goes about his business. James says, look, Suffering will never make sense to you until you learn to distinguish between that which is permanent and that which is perishable. Some years ago, my family and I were awakened with the most unearthly screams. Crash of glass. We ran to the front of our house, looked across the street, two houses down, our neighbor's home going up in flames. We tore out that front door and across the street, only to arrive in time to see the last member of the family, the boy, coming through the window. And I saw the most pitiful sight I think I've ever seen. I saw a cultured, educated, supposedly sophisticated American take his fists and clench them and with all of his power just pang, pound the sod, cursing God, cursing the fire department as his home went up in smoke. And as I melted back into the crowd as the fire engines arrived with my two boys, I couldn't help but ask him, man, if that happened to us, what would we lose? Let me ask you. See, suppose while you were here this morning, your home, your trailer, whatever you live in, your apartment, just completely destroyed by fire. Everything in it. When you went out the door, an usher said to you, I hate to tell you this, but I know you want to know. Everything you own was destroyed. What would you lose? 
Well, you see, ultimately, that depends on what you're living for. If you are living for the perishable, you may have lost everything you had. See, if you are living for all the stuff you got under one mortgage, there it goes. If you are living for the permanent, you haven't lost a thing, except that which is in the process of perishing anyway. When I was in India, I had a privilege, incredible privilege, of talking in a leprosarium. I'd never had this opportunity, and as some of you know, through medical science, we have made tremendous strides in this field. But many of these people were ravished with the disease before the cure became available. And there were about 60 people in a little chapel on a Sunday afternoon. And they asked me if I would speak. And before I spoke, the man who was conducting the service got up and said, uh, let's have some testimony. One after another in various stages of leprosy, these people got up and gave their testimony. And pretty soon a dear little woman, most beautiful woman I have ever seen in my life, I'm obviously not talking about the superficial standards of Hollywood, got up, she held both hands up, all ten fingers were gone, eaten by leprosy. And she said, thank God I'm a leper. Because through my leprosy, I came to know Jesus Christ. And I'd rather know him and be a leper than to be fully whole and a stranger to his grace. And I said, thank you, Lord. I finally found somebody who can distinguish between the permanent and the perishable. Can you? If not, you're going to spend the rest of your life hassling your little collection of junk. Boy, has God ever driven this home to me, my dear friends. I guess he knew how badly I needed it. I spent a lot of time in recent years in the city of Dallas with the wealthiest people in America who have everything. Everything. I spent time with people in professional sports who are at the top of their pile and at the bottom of life. Because they spend all of their energy, all of their gifts, all of their ability amassing this collection of things which is in the process of passing away. Never understanding what the Savior meant when he said, man does not live by bread alone. Please note, he didn't say that man does not live by bread. He does. God made him to live that way. That's why you work. But all oh, the idiocy of thinking that life consists only of the abundance of the things that you possess. If I asked you what are the most important things in your life, you'd come out with such things as love, peace, joy. Say, need. Bring up a pound of love and we'll put it here. Bring up a half a pound of peace so we can put it over here and take a look at it. See, my friends, the most important things in your life are not material. They're spiritual. They're permanent. They're going to last throughout eternity.
That's why James can say, count it all joy. When you fall so as to be completely surrounded with a variety of testings, because God's working in your life to give you an eternal perspective, to make you just like Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for your word which is alive. Thank you for the Holy Spirit who takes that word and applies it to our life. We can only bring truth to men's ears. He must take it to the heart. And we pray that that word may fall upon good ground, may germinate and bring forth fruit, so that as we go out to live in the midst of a crooked and a perverse generation, we may shine as lights. We may be distinctively different so that even in our society, others may be compelled to ask for an explanation. Thank you for what you are going to do. We commit ourselves to you, to the word of your grace, able to build us up. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we come. Amen.